Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. The Hudson Bay. Nothing quite epitomizes the early history of Canada as we know it today, quite like that internal body of water that borders one territory and three, technically four, provinces. You can't learn about the fur trade or early European settlers or the foundation of the Republic of Canada without learning about the Hudson's Bay. But... The Hudson's Bay is hiding a tragic and twisted story that not a single young Canadian would have learnt in school. Winters are harsh in Canada, and in isolated communities like on the Belcher Islands, winters can be deadly. But none more deadly than the winter of 1941. The waters were cold and freezing over, letting out deep groans, as the sheets of ice grinded against one another, echoing in the aquatic chambers of the bay. The eastern waters of the Hudson Bay were turbulent at the best of times, and the winter winds were pushing glacial monuments of ice into the collection of 1,500 rocks that sat in the eastern portion of the Hudson's Bay, known as the Belcher Islands. Now, the word missionary. That is easily one of the most evil words in the English language. And a missionary had been to the Belcher Islands. But before leaving, had left a Bible in Inuit syllabics. This introduction of Christianity had been recent to the communities of the island. But this wasn't the first they'd heard of the colonial religion. They'd seen traders and missionaries come with rifles and harpoons and other luxuries, wearing a cross around their neck and in a literal sense, perhaps thought by following the scriptures of the Bible, they too could attain these luxuries. It only took a short time for the indigenous communities to start drawing parallels between their world and the New Testament once they started. Even in 2020, it's easy to contextualize the walls of ice and howling winds and ferocious waves as biblical images. Hunting that winter had also been bad incredibly bad, and it left many of the indigenous Inuit citizens wondering what they had done to deserve this suffering. The Belcher Islands sat just below the Arctic Circle and offered little to no vegetation, even in the summer months, and the lack of seal and walrus and Arctic hare were being felt as people grew hungrier and hungrier. The Inuit communities of the Belcher Islands were secluded and more so in the winter months. And it's important to note that these communities weren't primitive, they were traditional communities. The nights were long, and residents of the island spent the nights of howling Arctic winds learning from the new translated copy of the New Testament. But they had no context or sense of abstraction or contemporary Western motives of religion. It was foreign and strange, and they had nothing in their cultural to draw a parallel or contextualize it. 
Their legends and stories of folklore were literal, not abstract and aloof like the Bible. So it was only a matter of time until someone capitalized on these new and foreign belief systems. The catalyst for the ugly horrors of what was to come shortly after was a beautiful and spectacular awe-inspiring meteor shower that lit up the sky like far-off titan fireflies diving towards Earth and burning brilliantly. And it was that meteor shower that convinced 27-year-old Charlie Uyarak, a small and sickly young father, that this meteor shower, the lack of food, and harsh winds and mammoth ice blocks crashing against their islands were all part of a celestial event. When he read a passage in the Bible from the Gospel according to Matthew which read, The stars will fall from the sky, and you will see the Son of Man coming. Charlie could now see what this meant. The connection was plain and obvious, he'd witnessed it in the lack of food, the deadly freezing temperatures, the pain and suffering in the faces of his community members. It was obvious to Charlie that this was the end of the world. But Charlie considered himself an Angakok, which is the Inuit term for a shaman, and Charlie considered Jesus the white man's Angakok. Charlie then proclaimed to others in his village, saying, I am Jesus Christ, preparing the people for when the other Jesus comes. And his first act as the self-proclaimed Messiah was naming Peter Sala, the tallest man on the island, as well as the best hunter and ice navigator as God. Together, Peter and Charlie worked hard to paint the idea of utopia for the citizens of the Belcher Islands, working fervently to paint the idea of their utopia, their version of heaven. There would be no need to hunt, no need to fish, no need to work, and hunger, well, hunger wouldn't exist. But while they were preaching and converting, they were also busy doing what they could to ensure the security of their community. And when I say their community, I mean Charlie and Peter's cult. And they weren't protecting themselves from the outside, they were protecting themselves from the inside. And the most effective way they could realize that protection was to kill most of the sled dogs. If there were no sled dogs, no one could escape the islands. But of course they passed it off as a pragmatic decision telling their converts and the non-believers alike that there would be no need for travel at the end of the world. But in reality, Charlie and Peter just wanted to fully isolate their community from any conflicting influences and to prevent the escape of non-believers. Peter would walk amongst his flock on the island, telling them that although he looked the same as them on the outside, on the inside he was truly God. This was a blending of the old Inuit religions and beliefs, and the new colonial Christianity. They believed that in nature, everything had a soul not just humans. Animals, rocks, rain, the sky and the sea, it all had a soul. Not only that, but one soul could travel from one being or object to another, and through that established belief of the Inuit, Peter passed off the idea of the god soul now inhabiting him alongside his old soul. Everything seemed to be going okay though. Sure, there were some citizens who weren't convinced that Peter and Charlie were exactly what they claimed, but many of the Inuit were interested in the idea of their utopia and what the end of the world meant for them. 
and the suffering that came along with the harsh lifestyles that was living on the Belcher Islands. I mean, they had also killed dogs, but they had a semi-okay reason. But it didn't take long until the darker side of the cult of Charlie the Messiah and Peter the Two-Souled God became apparent. A young, brave Inuit girl named Sarah Apaukuk, who had grown up her whole life on the islands, wasn't as convinced as her half-brother was. Sarah bravely and brazenly strode up to Peter and Charlie and proclaimed to them, You're not God, and you are not Jesus. She then looked at Peter Sala and proclaimed, You are Peter Sala on the outside, and you are Peter Sala on the inside. That could not stand. Charlie and Peter couldn't have that young girl questioning their religious authority. If that free-thinking, rational girl spoke the truth, then more soon would follow. So through the same twist of a metaphorical, magical wand, the two religious leaders declared Sarah to be Satan. Sarah's half-brother did believe Charlie and Peter to be Jesus and God, though. And not only did he believe it, he felt the zeal of this righteous calling. He felt it in every fiber of his soul. So when he murdered his sister Sarah, beating her to death with the assistance of another teenage girl, all in the name of Charlie and Peter, he truly thought he was saving his sister's soul from Satan. She had become possessed, looking like Sarah on the outside, but Satan on the inside. Sarah's bravery in speaking up inspired two men, non-believers in the malformed religious prattle being peddled on the island to stand up. Charlie decided that if Sarah's death wasn't enough of an example, then these two men would also have to die. And so, they were also murdered. I want to stress this wasn't a community of stupid people. Charlie and Peter didn't convert everyone on the island, but they converted enough, and those they converted were fervent. Not only that, but even in this day, the age of information with the internet, which is an endless wealth of information available at all times with the click of a few buttons, people continually believe what suits them best in that moment and affirms their fears and their suspicions, not what is the truth. This cold winter, when starvation was approaching fast, this was the time when a wannabe Angakuk like Charlie could prove his worth in his community. The fear of starving to death, the fear of watching friends and family starve to death, certainly played a role in the members of this community seeking answers outside their usual realm of experience. Had this been a mild winter with good hunting, this never would have happened. And once again, even now in 2020, I'd expect, given the same set of circumstances, almost anywhere in the world, completely isolated and afraid, a vocal minority would do the same. This was the real-life version of the Lord of the Flies. Peter Sala wasn't only Peter, and he wasn't only God. He was an influential provider for the Inuit on the Belchers, and the most educated man in the ways of the outside world. He had led an expedition of scientists in the 1930s to the Belcher's Island. Peter could speak some English and was a keen and logical man. But despite that, Peter himself, for a time, was caught up in the fear and mass hysteria perpetuated by Charlie. 
But Peter was finding himself less and less convinced, as the situation on the Belcher Islands became darker and more disturbing. By mid-March, Peter was sickened by what he was seeing. His doubt and regret were finally giving way to rational thinking. So Peter loaded up his sled and prepared his sled dogs, which had been spared in the purge earlier that winter to go and visit the Hudson Bay Company representative to tell him about the murders. In March, in Canada, let alone northern Canada, the days can be warm and then brutally cold. The sun could melt the ice sheets laying on the surface of the Hudson Bay, enough for the weight of a pack sled and a large full-grown man to fall through and freeze in the water. So it wasn't an action taken lightly by Peter. No, this was a deliberate decision well thought out and planned, a decision not only for himself but for his community, which he was beginning to understand that he had been misserving the past few months. Peter had gotten lost in his ego and the mass hysteria brought on by the threat of starvation and death. Peter Sala eventually arrived on the mainland and reported the murders on the island to the Hudson Bay employee, who quickly telegraphed the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. But it was now 1941, World War II was in full swing, and there were no available planes to transport them quickly back to the Belcher Islands to stop the doomsday cult Charlie had whipped up in a religious frenzy. All planes, unfortunately, had been dedicated to the war effort in Europe. While Peter Sala was away, trying to correct the mistakes he'd made, trying to stop more deaths and more insanity, Charlie had been busy grooming Peter's 25-year-old sister, churning her enthusiasm into irrational religious fervor. On March 29th, Mina awoke early in the morning and dressed herself for the weather outside. That day, she chose a sled dog whip as her accessory of choice because she had a religious duty to attend to. Mina Sala stalked about the village, through the tents and igloos, cracking the whip with loud, dangerous explosions in the frigid air that promised pain and suffering to anyone who spoke against her. People timidly looked outside as Mina selectively picked specific tents, plucking individuals as she went. Her authority was enforced not only by the whip in her hand, but by the religious followers accompanying her. Mina, in total, plucked a dozen people from their homes into the cold air. Mina used her whip and her enforcers. She corralled the women and children, forcing them out of the safe bounds of the village, out to the water's edge, and forced them to strip down, pulling off their clothes and boots, and then forced them out onto the sea ice. It doesn't matter if they freeze, Mina said. The world will soon be coming to an end and then they will be fine. That's what she thought. While Peter Sala was away, six of the dozen exposed standing and huddling naked and afraid on the sea ice, bullied by the religious converts and Mina, the one-woman Spanish Inquisition it seemed, died. The six were Peter and Mina Sala's mother, sister, and four nephews. Police arrived in the Belchers in April, along with Peter, who arrived to find out in horror and agonizing sorrow that his mother and sister and four nephews had been murdered by his sister and Charlie's cult. 
In August, the RCMP set up a tent where a judge was delivered to preside over the trial and a jury sat to make judgment. The jury found Charlie Uyrak, Peter Sala, and two of their followers guilty of manslaughter and two other followers not guilty by reason of insanity. Mina Sala, tied to a gurney, screaming and pulling at her restraints through the entirety of the trial, was declared insane and not fit to stand trial. Their sentence was two years hard labor and imprisonment, as well as being exiled from their community and the Belcher Islands. Charlie Uyrak, though, escaped his exile and half of his sentence when a year later, he died of what was suspected to be tuberculosis. And of all those exiled from the island, only one of them returned. As an old man, haunted by his regrets and mistakes, feeling the weight of his past decisions and lack of rational thinking, Peter Sala returned to the island to face his past and to live the end of his life. Returning to the island must have been surreal for Peter. At one point, he had been a pillar of the community, who used his intellect and expertise to provide food and navigate his community through the ice safely to and from the mainland. Then he became a living embodiment of God, having not one, but two souls residing within him. And then he was exiled, to return hat in hand decades later, to face his past mistakes. Peter Sala's body now lies below a carn of rocks and lichen with a plain white cross to mark his grave on the Belcher Islands. Few in the community now, who are all elderly, are willing to speak about the events when Christianity melded with their indigenous beliefs, and the fear of starvation set the community on a collision course with itself. Not only was Peter Sala ashamed and racked with regrets, but the community as a whole shouldered the responsibility of what happened, especially the murder of brave young Sarah Apaukuk. So, Creep, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed today's story, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in increasing the audience and getting these stories out. And more importantly, every single five-star review gets me one step closer to getting out of my mother's basement. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by myself, Cole Weavers, and production and editing by Matt Black. And remember, creeps... Take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the door.